0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week we're visiting the ancestral lands of the Apache, Comanche, Pueblo, Navajo, Ute, and Zuni peoples of New Mexico. the
1: glaciers of Alaska, to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the call, you know so well, sisters began.
0: Hey, 50 Feminist States fam. Welcome back to season five of the podcast and thank you so much for tuning in today. I am so excited on this very special Friday to be bringing you two very special episodes from New Mexico. I spoke to two feminist artists who have so much to tell us about their art practice, their feminist practice, how the two come together, how teaching impacts their work, and more. I really can't say enough how amazing both of these episodes are and how grateful I was to learn from these wonderful women. Their names are Sarah Stoller and Rosemary Mesa Plus. and I can't wait for you to hear what they have to share with us. Before we get into the episode, quick friendly reminder that if you want more 50 Feminist States in your life, you can follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. And subscribe to our newsletter, at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. I'd love to be in your inboxes and your Instagram feeds sharing more amazing quotes and images from each episode. We've got a very cool new brand going on thanks to Chelsea Warren, and you can see it there on Instagram and in our newsletter. Also, Big thanks to everyone who has already pledged to make a $5 monthly donation to the podcast on our Glow FM page. We are almost halfway to my goal. So if you can be one of those people who can pledge just $5 a month to support this ongoing work please head to glow.fm slash 50 states. I feel like my introductions to these episodes have been getting long, so I am going to dive right in this week. This episode you're tuned into right now is an interview with Sarah Stoller. Sarah is an interdisciplinary artist living in Santa Fe and the chair of the art department at University of New Mexico Taos. She paints monumental portraits of survivors and powerful women and creates intricate film and video installations about all sorts of themes relating to gender and growing up. I love her work. I encourage you to click through the show notes and look at the images on her website because they are so powerful. And you're definitely going to want to after you hear everything that she has to share during this episode. At the very end of it, she's going to talk about what she sees the role of the feminist artist being in our culture. And I highly encourage you to stick around and make sure you hear some of the amazing things that she says. Let's dive Dive right in together. Here's Sarah.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. My name is Sarah Stoller and I am an interdisciplinary artist and I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico now. I grew up in Los Angeles and ultimately moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I went to the Art Academy of Cincinnati for my undergraduate degree. and I majored in painting. I left there immediately after graduation and went to San Francisco where I got my master's degree in new genre, and that's where I think my interdisciplinary practice really kind of exploded, and that was in 2003 when I got my MFA. I have since been actively pursuing teaching at the college level, and I've taught at a variety of institutions, and currently I am the chair of the art department
0: at the University of New Mexico Taos. Awesome. I feel like you kind of just told us your path to becoming an artist through you know, your various studies. But could you share a little bit more about about your work and kind of some of the painting and and interdisciplinary projects that you've worked on?
1: Sure. I'll just circle back though and say, if I'm going to refer to my path as an artist, Mm -hmm. my mother is a very well-respected artist. Her name is Merlene Shane. Mm -hmm. And um, she currently lives with me. I take care of her. She has advanced stage Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. But She owned an art school in Cincinnati, and she's responsible for a lot of young artists growing up to become very successful. And she went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm. So I um, grew up in her art studio. So that's really kind of where it started. So I just wanted to get that in there because I love my mom. I love my mom and I want to give her the props that she deserves for helping me get to this place.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. I mean, I think just like in terms of our own lives, but also anytime we're talking about like feminist practice, recognizing that sort of intergenerational nature, our ancestry, like the people who influence us is so important. Maybe if you don't mind, can I ask a question about that? Yeah, for
1: sure. Yeah. Ask about my mom. I love talking about my mom.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm just wondering what it was like growing up with an artist. Did it make you like Maybe this, I have this question because I grew up like in a family of engineers, and so <laughs> I can't imagine, kind of, did you feel like art was always around and such a kind of part of your upbringing? Can you say a little bit more about what that was like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as far back as I can remember, I have been working in my mother's art studio. I have a really distinct memory of when my mother taught at New Dimensions High School in Los Angeles of drawing the live model when I was, I don't know, I must've been four or five years old. I remember crying and being really sad that my model didn't look like everybody else's. And I remember my mom saying, you're four, (laughs) You'll get better. Just keep practicing. I have a lot of memories of being in her studio and her working. It's interesting because some of the paintings that I remember as being so massive are really not that big, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I was just so small. Um, And it's interesting because my father was a clinical psychologist. He committed suicide in 2008, which has been kind of a catalyst for a lot of my work that I've been making since then. But there was some kind of emotional abuse and things happening. And I remember my mom telling me that she had wished that she had gotten her master's degree and that she didn't have to be dependent. She ultimately moved through a series of marriages and there was always kind of this advice. It was this underlying feminist advice, but it wasn't this declaration of feminism, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Things like always keep your last name or when I went to art school, paint really big so you can keep up with the big boys at school. Mm -hmm. At the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, she told me stories about how she had to sit outside of the clay studio to be let in because she wouldn't change her major. She was the only woman who wanted to take Mm -hmm. ceramics. She talked a lot about wishing that she could have more of an art career and not teach so much, even though she was an incredible teacher. And that's what she ended up doing is touching a lot of people. Mm. When I was growing up, I never thought I would be as good as her. And so I actually pursued instrumental music and played the violin. Mm. And it wasn't until I was about, I guess, 19 years old that I decided that I wanted to go to art school. And my mom helped me build a portfolio. And then I went to the Art Academy of Cincinnati. When I think back, it definitely wasn't a traditional childhood upbringing. After my mom got divorced, we lived in a building that had clay in the kitchen and beads in one bedroom and the Mm -hmm. bedrooms were painting studios. And it really made me who I am today and helped me establish the practice that I am today. My mom cranks work still with Alzheimer's is still working in the studio every single day.
0: Wow. That is a strong creative practice, lifelong creative practice. I respect that dedication so much. Thank you. Yeah, I joke with my students at school about
1: oil painting especially and say that I came out of the womb with a gallon of paint thinner and a handful of brushes.
0: And (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah.
1: That's wonderful.
0: Well, could you tell us a little bit about, about your work then? I read a little bit about the Bella Ribbons Project, but I don't know if that encompasses and of everything you're working on right now, or if there are other things you also want to talk about, I couldn't quite tell.
1: Yeah, so the Bella Ribbons project is just one project of many bodies of work that I work on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. a true interdisciplinary artist in the sense that I shift gears drastically between traditional figure painting to conceptual art to performance art, collaborative work, video and film installation and so forth. It's interesting because just to circle back to feminism throughout my entire artistic career, nearly everyone would tell me to focus. It seemed like if you came into my studio, all of my different bodies of work seemed very separate. And it's interesting with the Bella Ribbons project, I really do feel like a lot of those separations in my work kind of came together in this one beautiful synergy of interdisciplinary work. And what I mean by that is I make large-scale figure paintings of powerful women and gender-fluid individuals. And I also make these flow-based drawings that are very kind of from the gut. They're kind of abstracted with a little bit of visual language in there, some signifiers and icons and symbols. I make video, and I've been making these little dollhouses that have miniature video in them. I've made a mental hospital and a strip club and a home a house and a farm and a movie theater. And while I was making this work, I just kind of stayed the course my whole career, just kind of doing what I wanted to do because it felt like what I needed to do. And with the Bella Ribbons project, I really saw these investigations that I have been deep into for I mean, since like 1998, mm-hmm. come together in the form of a film. And I have to say that's, you know, in great gratitude to some really talented people, John Spencer and Seth D. Myers, my collaborators for the film. And I have new collaborators too that I'm. I, we created some miniature dollhouses with some 3D mapping and technology. And there are large scale drawings that I created that are based on stills from the film or kind of emotive places that come out of the entire experience of making the project. I'm happy to say that it's very successful. The film has gone on to win a ton of awards and I'm really grateful. And now it's kind of coming to a close and I'm circling into this new body of work that I feel like I learned a lot from the Bella Rubens project. And now I'm ready to kind of take what I learned from that and apply it to this new body of work that is focused on grief.
0: Mm. Could you share a little bit more about that last thing you said, like kind of what what you've learned and how you're transitioning that into your next project? Yeah, I think that um,
1: I've always just kind of made work I'm a, I'm a very process based studio artist. I can spend hours at a time in the studio alone working. it's kind of a compulsion mm-hmm. and I've always just kind of made and i'll get on these paths and I'll kind of follow them, but I've never really thought about work in terms of an exhibition, for example, like what would this look like if everything were hanging together and how do these different things speak to each other? How does this oil painting speak to this drawing, which speaks to this multimedia sculpture, which speaks to this film? So really kind of dialing in the interdisciplinary nature of the investigations and focusing it towards one specific topic. Where in the past, the paintings, I want to talk about the paintings. I didn't really touch on that. Mm -hmm. Oil painting is my first and true love. And I'm traditional in the sense that my figures are representational. And the painting style is in the lineage of kind of like John Singer Sargent, like loose and free and representational and accurate. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of saw those as like this other separate thing. And so now I think what I'm learning from the Bella Rubens project is that I can join them together, that I could present these paintings of these powerful women and also deal with the emotional content or the conceptual content over here in video or in performance or in drawing, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I can imagine how, well, I mean, as a viewer of the work or experiencing the work, how exciting that would kind of be to feel feel the different medium coming together in that way.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: and I've only seen it on your website, so I haven't had the like in-person experience of so many of these things, but.
1: I always kind of had one statement specifically for the paintings and I still stand by it. I just had a really great exhibition curated by Mary Scully, the curator of the New Mexico Museum of Art, where we exhibited a series of paintings and drawings too. And one of them is a portrait of Lucy Lepard, the famous feminist, seminal feminist writer and critic. Mm -hmm. And these paintings, they really, when I'm making them, I'm really kind of thinking about the history of painting, thinking about the history of portraiture, and how women are represented in painting throughout history. And I'm the first to say that I love a beautiful odalesque. I love to go to a museum to the Uffizi and, you know, look at (laughs) a Titian odalesque. I have a lot of great respect for that. But for me, it's more about kind of inserting these powerful women into the canon of monumental painting in the history of portraiture in a power way as opposed to an objectified way.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some of the characteristics that distinguish those two things? Like, what do you think makes something an empowered way rather than an objectified way?
1: I think that it has to do with first and foremost the intention of the painter. And what type of narrative they're trying to communicate. I think when the intention is internal, it comes out in the work. Mm-hmm. And then I also, secondly, feel like it has to do with the gaze. It has to do with who's looking at the painting and who is the painting intended for and what what is the intention and the context of where the painting is going to hang. So, for example, some of these older traditional Reclining nudes were created and intended to be in private offices of important men. Mm -hmm. So they were art historically considered to be the playboy of the time, if you will. Mm -hmm. I recently, while at the Vermont Studio Center, made a series of small paintings of nude women titled The Boudoir. It's on my website under paintings. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about these paintings as being paintings for the female gaze. Can we be empowered sexually? And make paintings that communicate that for women or for that viewer. And I was specifically thinking of bisexual women or lesbian women and what is that like? And does it change? And does it change in the painting? And does it change for the viewer? And I don't know the answers to the questions. I don't know if. I did it or not. It's just something that I think about when I'm working. Mm -hmm. I think that the gaze of the subject is important. If the subject is looking right at you, there's a certain little kind of knowing smirk that I might add to the subject's face. Whereas if the eyes are downcast, that's going
0: to communicate a different kind of story. Mm -hmm. I noticed in these paintings that they're all named after, well, the names. Katie, Gigi, Robin, and Rachel. Are these specific women you know or have in mind or do you name the paintings after you paint the years?
1: I name the paintings after the subjects. I don't do commissions. I've only actually done one portrait commission and it was just recent and it was for a very dear and important friend. But otherwise, I just Mm -hmm. don't do it. Um, I really have to be connected to my subjects. I... Have to know them, and I choose them based on how they inspire me and how they inspire the world. Mm -hmm. So, those women that you just named are all artists, they're feminists, they're survivors, they are people who are making a difference in the community, and people who I feel are deserved of being embedded into the history of painting. So the boudoir is different in the sense that they're small and they're intended to be intimate, where if you look at, for example, the current paintings or the last series, which is from 2012 to 2017, the paintings are very large. They're at the six-foot scale and sometimes larger. The actions, for example, the painting of Brittany Watkins, who is an incredible installation artist in Florida, of her sawing up the chair. That's Brittany in the studio working on her work. That's her sculpture. That's what she does. She, mm-hmm. she builds these installations. And so while I'm kind of capturing her in this moment, I am also storytelling through the signifiers of a saw and a chair and the fact that she's straddling and the Mona Lisa socks and the big work boots and The like worm's eye view of being down low as the viewer looking up to the subject while she looks down upon you, very kind of imposing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're important people. They're people who, again, I care about the history of painting. I believe in it. I come from a lineage of painters. Adolf von Menzel is my great, 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 plus, I'm not sure, uncle, Mm. German master painter. It matters to me. I believe in this history. And if we're going to change the faces that are hanging on the walls of the museums, then that's the job of the portrait painter who is alive today and working in the
0: 21st century. Mm. I love that so much. And I haven't, I guess said yet that I find your paintings to be so evocative, the strength of the women that comes through each of them feels so unique to that person, but also tapping into just like a wider Sense of empowerment that I love. And I think it really does come through. And I really enjoy hearing you talk about the connection between each painting and the larger history of painting and kind of placing.
1: Yeah. So I'm interested in, I mentioned John Singer Sargent before, and he's a painter who I've kind of obsessed over my entire painting career, Mm -hmm. including his practice and how he would kind of do these portraits of important people and idealize them in a certain kind of way. And we know from the painting and hopefully I'm getting the title right Madame X and the black dress that mm-hmm. um, it kind of ruined his career because she wasn't idealized. So it's interesting I kind of pick up on this I springboard off of this. When I work with these women and people that I'm painting, I have conversations with them. If I don't take the photos myself, we do it long distance where we'll kind of talk to each other, they'll kind of create a photo shoot, they'll send it to me, I'll look through them. I'll say, okay, I really like this. Can you change the lighting or move a little bit to the right? So it either happens long distance or it happens right in the studio. Mm -hmm. And then there's a long and very caring conversation that happens about how the subject, how the person I'm painting wants to be seen. I love Jenny Saville. She's one of my favorite painters. She paints the real body exactly as it is all of its flaws, its dimples, its veins. I think that's amazing and empowering in one way. But for me, I might have my subject say, hey, do you think you can like shave a couple inches off my thighs? Or I really like my body here, but I like my face in this picture over here. Or when I did a drawing of C. Marquez, who is gender fluid, C said, can you make me as flat chested as possible. Hmm. So this is important because while the paintings are expected to be powerful for the viewer, I want the subject to see themselves on this grand scale. And when they look at themselves, say, hell yeah, that's me. I'm a badass. Look at me up there. That makes me feel really good. So it's about empowerment in general, but Mm -hmm. it's about empowerment it's a gift. It's an exchange with my subject. If that
0: yeah. is clear. Yeah. I'm just like processing and loving that idea. That's like gift of empowerment that happens in the process of creating of you painting the portrait. It's just like a location that as somebody who myself like reads a lot about art and works in philosophy on aesthetics, like that particular location is not one I see talked about as much between the relationship between, the painter and the subject of the painting and how those choices get made about presentation and representation. That's really cool. I like positing that as like a locus in of the feminism in the work too, That that can be a place that it happens. That's really, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yes. It's a very integral part of the work. Yeah. That particular body of work, the paintings and drawings, especially.
0: Yeah. Oh, this is so wonderful. I can't wait to share some of like, the conversation and some images of yeah. these paintings with people.
1: We could talk if you want to. We could talk about, if you go to 2012 and 2017 and you scroll down, you'll see an image of a girl who was punched in the mouth. It's called Punch. It's towards the, the bottom
0: and it deals with domestic violence. Do you, yeah, I would love to, can you tell me the story of this? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. So
1: the painting of Bliss, which is, if you're looking on my website, the one next to the painting of Punch that we're going to talk about, I made this painting first. And Tamara Bliss Sharp is a healer. She's a dancer. She's this amazing woman who goes into the community of Oakland and plants gardens in empty lots and takes care of people in hospice. I mean, she's just an incredible healer. So I did this painting of her with her hands outstretched like this, a perfect representation of who she is as a person. And I put it online. At that time, Sarah Hollis, the artist who is in the painting of Punch, reached out to me. She saw the painting. Now, there's an interesting twist to this story, and that is Sarah Hollis is a generation younger than me. And after I left the art academy, my mother taught there. And Sarah was my mother's student. So there's this great kind of circle that happened. So Sarah Hollis reached out to me and said, at the time when I had painted the painting in 2014, she said, eight years ago, I was domestically abused. I went into my bathroom and I took these pictures and I never really shared them with anyone. And it's this kind of deep, dark secret that a lot of people, most people don't know about me. And I'm wondering if you could please pick one of these photos and do a portrait of me and put it on the internet and tag me in it and basically out my story so I can talk about it. Mm. So this was circling back to the Bliss painting. It was because she saw this painting of Bliss. So I find this, you know, and I'm not trying to be cheesy, but (laughs) it is true. It's like the painting spoke, you know, here's Bliss and Bliss is this healer and her hands are outstretched and Sarah saw it and needed healing. And the painting spoke to her and she reached out to me and said, Hey, can you do this thing for me? Mm -hmm. And so In this particular sense, it's very different than all the other paintings. I don't have ownership of the photos. Sarah can do, of course, whatever she wants with them. Other artists have interpreted the work too. So it's a different personal understanding as far as the topic because it's so sensitive. Mm -hmm. A really fantastic thing is the Harwood Museum of Art exhibited this painting. They could have picked any painting. And the former director said, if there's ever a time to show it, it's now. This painting's gone on to be shared within domestic violence therapy groups and help sites and other resources for this. So it was a really kind of pivotal and important painting for me. And I feel like of all of the work is the one that really kind of illustrates the point of how this type
0: of work can be healing for people. Yeah. And I think like, it's another way of kind of focusing on that kind of locus of the relationship between the portrait painter and the subject and Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about locating healing in that relationship either in the sense of it's about the painting that results from it but more perhaps even more so about the act of painting and representation
1: I mean and it's healing for me too because you know I say this and I don't want to sound so harsh but you know I just find it really really hard to believe that if I meet a woman who's like never been at the very least sexually harassed in some kind of way through at least a statement, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just hard for me to believe that any woman could move through life and not experience some form of emotional or physical abuse. And I think one of the positives that's coming out of the current socio political climate is that we're bringing attention and awareness to this with the me too movement and people are starting to believe women. Mm -hmm. So for me, sometimes I have stories I want to tell too, But I don't want to tell them from my own voice because it feels too vulnerable for me to go there. So with a painting like this or some of the other paintings that are more kind of fierce woman empowerment related or my current work that deals with grief where I'm collaborating with and a really fantastic performance artist, Cressy May, who lives in Colorado and she's the subject of my work. But all of my work is autobiographical it's all identity driven. It's all driven by interpersonal relationships. So it's a way for me to work with subjects who can feel healing through my work. And then I can also kind of get that too. It's cathartic.
0: Mm -hmm. It's reminding me of another piece that I saw on your website, the the uterus Uh, bat signal and some of the other more installation work. Could you maybe talk about either the cathartic nature of some of your installations and film projects or how you see, how or if you see healing in those. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. So maybe I'll talk now about the installations and the dollhouses. Yeah. Because those are very strong feminist statements. I started working with the dollhouse as this kind of idea of this young girl's playland. As little girls, we're given a dollhouse and we're told to keep this house you make your, your little beds and you put your little wallpapers up and have your tiny little dishes and move your little people around. And it's almost a really kind of interesting precursor for what's expected of women as they grow older. On the flip side of that, my dollhouse is a very special memory for me because my mother and I built it from scratch and we purchased all the lighting. And it's a really strong connection that I have with her in building that. When I started to make them, I started to think of them as sets for films, but then they became interesting as sculptures in their own right. And so I started to pull from public and private spaces that are connected to my life. And I started to rebuild them in miniature. Mm. And it's a very strange experience in the studio when I do this, because I do revert back to a strange kind of childhood experience where I am playing in a dollhouse but then that gets i get kind of ripped to the present moment when i have to turn on my chop saw and cut a piece of wood <laughs> so <laughs> it's a really interesting experience and then the themes of the dollhouses are you know very adult a little kind of twisted and so it's not your typical dollhouse it's kind of speaking to societal expectations of women sexual expectations of women domestic expectations of women and then creating these kind of miniature worlds where we house maybe what the reality is, which could be a strip club or a house with a bedroom that has sex sounds coming out of it or a, a mental hospital.
0: Yeah, these look so fascinating. And each one, as is the point, each one has its own small world. And I love how like they evoke such different feelings as I look at them which I imagine is the point, like whether it's intended for the viewer to relate or feel unsure or and that'll depend on who's looking at it as well in each instance.
1: That's right. And going back to
0: when I talked about how the Bella
1: Ribbons Project helped to bring all the work together, in the film, the protagonist is a young girl, a young dancer, and she's followed by her shadow self, who is a masculine hooded figure wearing all black. He lives in a house inside of a labyrinth. And throughout the film, she carries keys around with her. And it's interesting because I've been working with keys for so long and the meanings of keys have changed for me so much, but they really have to do with power. If you hold the key, you hold the power. You can lock people out or let people in. You have access to things So, she has these keys and these little houses that she kind of plays with throughout the film that are miniature versions of the bigger house that the shadow man lives in. At the end of the film, we built a dollhouse and we burned the dollhouse at the end of the film. So, it's kind of this coming of age or coming into womanhood, loss of innocence, where she burns down this dollhouse. It was very significant for me Mm -hmm. and an image that is powerful. We then pulled that image out of the film and Me and uh, Enrico Trujillo, my other collaborator, created it in three dimension and 3D mapped fire on the exterior of it, put a little photograph of her inside. So it's just really interesting how for over 20 years I've been working in this way and not really understanding how they all, all the things connected Mm -hmm. and watching it kind of all come together in this project was really powerful for me.
0: Yeah, I think it sounds like that and I love... All the different layers of meaning and medium that you're overlapping there. That's exciting to imagine, I suppose, as I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Are there any other of your works that you would like to talk about specifically? I have like kind of one more really big picture question, but before we go there, I'd love to make space if you want to talk about. um,
1: I think I probably would really like to talk about teaching if I can. Oh, yeah, of course. Because I do think it is an active part of my practice and a really important role that I hold and something that while, you know, art is the most important thing in my life, but teaching is right there too. I am very committed to providing an educational atmosphere for students who may come from a more challenged demographic. So UNM Taos, the branch campus of Maine, we're a community college and we're in a tiny town. We serve the Taos Pueblo. We serve a lot of vastly diverse students from vastly diverse backgrounds who come to Taos to heal. It's a healing place. Mm -hmm. And since I've been there for the past four years, I really tried to create an art school environment in a community college demographic my reasoning for that is this, is that I went to two private art schools. That's very privileged. I don't feel that you have to be in a place of privilege to have that experience. So while I always thought that I really wanted to be teaching at Parsons or something, you know, somewhere really prestigious, Mm -hmm. I feel like I've really found my place at UNM Taos in the sense that I can Help to uplift these students, and these students have gone on to do some amazing things. I kind of joke around and say, If I die tomorrow, I did my job. For example, one of the things that we're doing now is graduating associates of fine art majors will have a show at the Harwood Museum. That means when they leave community college, they leave with a museum show on their resume. It took me 15 years to get there, yeah. so I'm extremely equity driven and want to hold space for those students, and it's probably the driving force of my life—it's what gets me out of bed every day.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how does that impact how you run that space in terms of people's process and critiques, and, and yeah, that day-to-day part of being an art teacher and student?
1: Well, I mean, first and foremost, it shows up in my academic policies. For example, I don't think it's fair to ask students for a doctor's note when we don't have true universal health care. Mm-hmm. I have to embrace empathy. I have to understand the difference between a high context and a low context demographic. So for example, I am from a low context demographic. I left home. I went away to college. I moved away from my hometown. I would say the majority of our society falls into that place. But students Mm -hmm. from the Taos Pueblo, for example, are... High context, You know, the conversation with the family member about the upcoming family holiday is more important than getting to class to take this test, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a college. There are certain standards that have to be met and learning outcomes that have to be met. But luckily, there's a lot of trust in the way that I run my program. And I've noticed that the more space and the more understanding and empathy and love I can give to my students, the more they rise up I mean, it's really incredible. My teaching has turned 180 degrees. I came from the San Francisco Art Institute. I was used to getting kind of like ripped to shreds and critiques, you know, Mm because to like build the rhino skin or whatever. And we do that too. It's a net part of making art. But there's a lot more holding, if you will, and empathy Mm -hmm. in the classroom. And encouraging them to make autobiographical work, encouraging them to tell their own stories. The intersectional feminist point of view, 50% or more of, and I'm always striving to make it better, of my lectures are people of color or people who identify as LGBTQIA+. It shows up in materiality. You don't have to have money to make large-scale museum-worthy work. We look at artists like Elan Matsui who makes massive sculptures out of garbage mm-hmm. and works with the community and so it's about breaking down privilege and giving access
0: mm-hmm. yeah I think that's so important in any classroom space and I teach and just adjunct at a university and I'm always trying to learn and adapt to what that means with each group of students because it always looks a little different depending on people's needs and context as you put it yeah that's right yeah so and my last question then is a pretty big question and I'm happy for you to take it wherever it comes to mind, but okay. I would love to hear from your perspective, like what do you think the role of the feminist artist is in 2020 U.S. society?
1: Yeah, that is a big question. Yeah. I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot, so I feel like I kind of have a good answer. <laughs> so Great. I love that. Wow. The role of the feminist artist I think personally, authenticity is really important. Ownership of your own voice and being able to kind of feel safe and putting it out there. But I think this isn't just speaks to the feminist artist, but to every artist. And that's understanding how we take up space in relationship to where we fall on what I call the privilege scale. For example, I want to represent and uplift and hold up Black women artists, right? So how can I do that? I can make 10 six-foot paintings of Black women artists and put them in museums, or I can curate a show of Black women artists and step out. So I think that's what I mean about taking up space. I think it's important to let people tell their own story. I really appreciate these male artists that are making these power paintings of women. There's a lot of them right now. They're really popular. They're all over Instagram. I can't even think of anybody's name right now. And they're fantastic. I mean, they're technically gorgeous paintings and they're powerful and I like them. I look at them. I like them. They're nice. But there's a little part of me that's like, thanks, I appreciate you being an ally and I appreciate your you wanting to uplift women, but it would be better if you maybe gave me that wall so I could make that painting and I could tell that story. Mm -hmm. So for me as a feminist artist, I am constantly conscious of whose story am I telling? Mm -hmm. And I make it a very strong intention that no matter what the work is and from what point of view, that it's always my story. And I have a great artist friend who is a tremendous artist, Nikisha Breeze, Black queer woman artist. And we've had long conversations about whether or not it's even appropriate for white artists to even continue to paint Black people, for example. And it doesn't even matter how I feel about that. It's important for me to just be silent and listen to what she has to say about that, because it's her turn to talk about that, if that makes sense. I hope I'm answering your question.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're doing great. And I think that... (laughs) Things, huh? <laughs> yeah, it, it is certainly a hard question. I felt like you were someone who is really like in the thick of it. I assume you had like thought about it because of that. The people I want to hear from on, on this question are the ones who are really making the work mm-hmm. and putting their own practice and identity at stake in that. Yeah. As opposed to like, you know critics and people kind of on the outside judging Mm -hmm. whether feminist art is feminist or feminist artists are doing the right work or whatnot that's right yeah but I definitely appreciate what you're pointing to which is kind of the that one of the roles of the feminist artist right now is a heightened sensitivity to identity and to who is representing whom and who's taking up space where
1: yeah and understanding intersectionality I think that's really, really important. I think that we cannot forget that word when we talk mm-hmm. about feminism because we, you know, I am a white artist. There is such a thing as white feminism. It's not good. Mm-hmm. And so understanding intersectionality is is crucial. And that that means honoring people's space and their voice and knowing when to be quiet and knowing when to let somebody else have the floor. And I also think that supporting each other and creating safe spaces to do that, I have a lot to tell and I'm not ready yet. I mean, there's going to be a time where I'm going to tell my whole story and all of the gory Mm -hmm. details. (laughs) And those who know it say like, wow, it informs your work so much. But I'm still a woman artist who feels fear around judgment and retaliation and in the community and things like that. It's holding space for each other. It's giving each other room to speak and be heard.
0: That's great. I think that's a really nice description of the role of the feminist artist and, and what's yeah, at stake in that. But... All right. I think that was all my questions. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. Okay, thank you so much. And please keep in touch. Yes, of course. 50 Star those fifty fifty
1: feminist
0: for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.